Hello, this is Dr. Mike Barnett with the First Baptist Church of Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Thank you so very much for tuning in to our podcast, and I pray that today's message will be a blessing and an encouragement to you. We are engaging our people at First Baptist Church in an emphasis called Who's Your Mission? It is a challenge to personal soul winning and personal evangelism for the year 2023. We've asked our people to ask God for at least one soul to be burdened for that they might go after that soul and win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the theme of these current messages. And I pray that they will encourage you to be a soul winner and go after one soul that needs to be saved now and to know Jesus now. I pray these messages will help you. And again, thank you for tuning in. Some years ago, we had a staff member here at First Baptist who was beloved um, very much so, and he went on to leave us and go into the pastorate, and he's been pastoring ever since in central Louisiana, and I'm talking about Christian Stubbs. He's my dear friend, but Christian I guess the happiest, most excited I've ever seen him, except for when the Lord would break through and do something out of the ordinary and marvelous, was on August the 9th, 2010. That was a special day for Christian Stubbs, who grew up, was born and raised in the city of New Orleans. August the 9th, 2010, was a very important day for many of you. And you're saying, really? Yes, indeed. That was the day that the Super Bowl champions, led by Drew Brees, walked into the East Room of the White House to be greeted and congratulated by the President of the United States. And the Marine Corps Band, played Louis Armstrong's When the Saints Come Marching In. Now, the Dallas Cowboys had ridden off into the sunset, but the New Orleans Saints got to go in hearing the tune When the Saints Go Marching In. Well, that's the New Orleans Saints. That's history. May or may not be repeated again. But I want to tell you about when the saints go marching in, not to the White House, but to Jerusalem today. And so I'm going to answer the question, who marches in? The city of Jerusalem is a remarkable city. First time I saw it, and I've seen it, uh, I've approached it several times in two different trips from different angles, but I remember the first time I saw it I stood up on the bus and walked up to the front and held on to the two seats expecting the bus driver to say sit down, but he couldn't speak English anyway, so I wouldn't have understood it. And uh, I uh, looked out and I saw us approaching the city of Jerusalem and my heart skipped a beat because that's where Jesus died for our sins. That's where the empty tomb is. That's where Abraham would sacrifice go to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah and be uh, provided a substitute. It's where the temple by Solomon was built. And it is mentioned over 800 times in Scripture. It's a remarkable city. It is the only city in all of the world that can be described as a shadow city of heaven. When God wants us to get a glimpse of our eternal home, he gives us some descriptions of heaven itself, but he also uses the city of Jerusalem. 
and he speaks of a new Jerusalem that is our eternal abode one day, the final estate of the saints in the new Jerusalem, new heaven and new earth. So it's a remarkable, remarkable shadow city. And every time we read of it in the Bible, Old or New Testament, we learn some spiritual truths about our relationship with Christ and our relationship with God through Christ. And so today we're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning with verse 6, just who it is who gets to march into the new Jerusalem. And so the question of the hour is, are you going in to the new Jerusalem? Will the song be struck up for you as you march into the new Jerusalem? I guess in just a common, old-fashioned way, the question is, who's going to heaven or who's going to hell? And our text is going to show us when David conquered Jerusalem. He had just been declared king after a seven-and-a-half-year civil war, and he had just been crowned king by all of Israel, not just the one tribe of Judah as he had been for seven-and-a-half years. A bloody time in Israel has ended, and it's time for David to establish his capital, and he chooses Jerusalem. But he had to take the city because a, a people group called the Jebusites were there. Now, the Jebusites were a very wicked people. They would kill babies on their altars and call it worship for their gods. And God had destined them for judgment because of their impenitent hearts, and they would not turn to Christ, and they would not surrender uh, their wicked ways and turn to the one true God that they had rejected, and God was, it was time to see their judgment. God had been patient with them. And so David took the city of Jerusalem, and the way he took it is miraculous. And I'm going to tell you about that today. And we're going to answer the question, who marches in to the new Jerusalem spiritual lessons we learn? So look with me at verse 6 of 2 Samuel 5. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem the, unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David. And this is what they said as David's army uh, massed down below in the valley, right in the gates of Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem. This is what the Jebusites said. Except you take away the blind and the lame, Thou shalt not come in here, thinking David could not come in there. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The same is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever gets up to the gutter and smites the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David, so David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built round about from Milo and inward. And David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. So we see David marching into Jerusalem. And in this text, we also see. Who will march in, what kind of people will march in to the new Jerusalem one day? Who are the saved, who are the redeemed that get to go to heaven when they die, who get to dwell in the new Jerusalem when Jesus comes back? Well, I want to give you three characteristics of these people, and I hope and pray you're one of them. You'll be in that number when the saints go marching in. I hope so. If not, by the end of the day, by the end of our time together, you'll be given the opportunity to be born again and meet these characteristics and march into the new Jerusalem and go to heaven when you die and, or be here. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be here when the Lord returns? That'd be even better. Either way, you know, you're going, you're going to meet him, but I, I want to go up before I ever go down. Amen. But nonetheless, I want to tell you what, I hope and pray you're one of them who gets to march in with the saints of God into the new Jerusalem. So let's look and see who they are. Number one, it's those who have been reconciled. Those who have been reconciled. 
Notice the first line of verse 6. It's loaded. It's full of, of great truth. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem. The king, that's David, and the men went to Jerusalem. These men, seven and a half years ago, they signed on with Abner. You might remember him. And Ishbosheth, you might remember him. The leaders of the rebellion against King David. Seven and a half years ago, and many of them even before then had pursued David to kill him in their loyalty to Saul. But here, they're with David going to Jerusalem. They are men who have been reconciled after seven and a half years of bloody civil war, seven and a half years of fighting against David, seven and a half years of saying, we know that Samuel, the prophet of God, anointed you David, to be king. We know you're to be king, but we don't want you as king. We want Saul's line to be king, and we rebel against you. For seven and a half years, they launched a rebellion. And then when it was all said and done and they came to themselves, they said, we can't win. God has said David's to be king. We can't win. And you remember from chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 5, what they did? They surrendered their will. They brought their soiled weapons, soiled with the very blood of David's men, David's army, and their, their sincere words they brought to David and said, Here we are surrendering and repenting of our rebellion, and we beg mercy that you would receive us into your kingdom. And David received them into the kingdom, and not only that, he put them in the army to take a new capital. These are reconciled people. You know, Vacation Bible School's coming up. You might have seen the display right out here for Vacation Bible School. And uh, every, when I walk past there during the week or even this morning, I see that display and pray for our Vacation Bible School. We... We've got some things we need. We've got some personnel we need. So be praying about your participation in Bible school. But you know what? I, um, I uh, am reminded of when I was a kid in vacation Bible school. How many of you went to Bible school as a kid? Now, when I was a kid, they put you in a room and gave you uh, your Bible study and your crafts in one room, and they brought you... A, three sugar cookies, and a Dixie cup full of Kool-Aid. No wonder you couldn't get workers for Bible school. Sugar cookies and Kool-Aid, and leave them alone in a room with kids like Jay and Cole. But I can remember we'd sing the songs in Vacation Bible. We'd sing the B-I-B-L-E, Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. You remember that? But there's one more we sing, and I'm going to make an executive decision, Cole. I want us to, I don't know if it has anything to do with the theme of Bible school this year, but I'm ordering it done. We're going to sing, and we need to do it. We need to sing, I'm in the Lord's army. Amen. Remember that? I may never march in the infantry. Remember that? Shoot the artillery. <laughs> Amen. Ride into Calvary. That's all you're getting. <laughs> or fly over the enemy. But I'm in the Lord's army. Amen. Somewhere along the line, we've lost that notion in our churches that we are the army of the Lord. Somewhere, some sissy preachers got up and started telling you, we're little, we're sick folk who go to a hospital every week. Show me that in the Bible. Show me that in the Bible. You are the victorious children of God, blood-bought, filled with the Holy Spirit. You're the army of the Lord. Get to marching. Amen. 
We don't come in here to get healed. We come in here because we've been healed. And we go outside with our weapons, which is the gospel, and we get on who's your mission and invade the devil's territory. Now, that's good preaching whether you like it or not. It's good preaching. It wasn't even in my notes for today. But I want to tell you, folks, we, we got to get that spirit back in our church. We're losing. We're losing our nation. And we're letting this woke crowd take over and get busy. We're so afraid to say anything. We're so afraid to take a stand anymore. And it started years ago when we failed to remind our generations, early, our, our young generation, you are the army of the Lord. You got saved and now you're in King Jesus' army. And you're supposed to storm the gates of hell. Jesus told us in the, uh, when he described the church, he said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates are defensive. We're to be on the offensive, and we're, we do that with prayer and Bible preaching and personal soul winning, and we get into the enemy's camp, and we win the victory. We're in the Lord's army, amen? Now, let me, let me, before we move on to the next thing, let me just say this. See, you're at war against somebody spiritually. You really are. Now, you may not think you're at war, but you're at war with somebody spiritually. You're either at war against the world, the flesh, and the devil, or you're at war against the Lord Jesus Christ, one or the other. Jesus himself said, he that is for me is for me. You're either for me or you're against me. That's the bottom line, folks. You say, well, I'm real passive. God doesn't count you that way. The Bible teaches us that without the Lord Jesus Christ, you are at enmity against God. You say, well, I don't feel like I'm God's enemy. It doesn't matter what you feel like. It matters what the Bible says. It matters what God says. God says, I count, I count you as enmity against me. And you need to be reconciled to God. That's the doctrine of reconciliation. And we who have been reconciled have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's what Bible school is all about. That's what Hoosier Mission is all about, is to tell people how they can be reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. And so those who will march into the new Jerusalem are those who have been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. They're no longer fighting against him. They're no longer waging a war of the will against him. They have surrendered, and they brought their sins to him, and he has received them, and he has allowed them into their kingdom and drafted them into his army. Amen. And so it's those who have been reconciled. Secondly, it's those who have been restored. Those who have been restored. So David comes to take Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? I mean, folks, uh, this is... Uh, let, me, let me read to you what one of the historians said about Jerusalem. He said, It has always been the city of Jerusalem the most important city on earth. Not Washington, not London, not Paris, not Peking, not Moscow or Rome, but Jerusalem is the world's true center. God has said of Jerusalem that he has set it in the midst of the nations. And this is so. Draw a circle on a map with Jerusalem at its center and with a radius of about 900 miles, it will take in almost the entire Middle East. Within that circle will lie Athens, Istanbul, Antioch, Beirut, Damascus, Baghdad, Alexandria, Cairo, and Mecca. Much of modern civilization is the offshoot of what happened within the compass of that circle, and Jerusalem is at its heart. It stands where no city has any business standing. It has no river. It commands no strategic highway. Its roads have always led straight out into the desert 
and it is topogra its top uh, topography is most unusual. That's Jerusalem. But David took it perhaps because it was the center of the Middle East, the center of all that was in his world. But I want to serve notice to you too, there's a couple other reasons David decided to make Jerusalem his capital. It was his character, the character of David. We see the character of David. The character of our Lord is pictured in the character of David. Well, why not, uh, why, why Jerusalem then? David, why not take Hebron? That's where you first were anointed king. That's where the men of Judah came and said, you're our king. Eleven other tribes are in rebellion, but not us. Hebron will be your capital. And David, for seven and a half years, well, Hebron was a place of no peace. It was a place of war. So he didn't want Hebron. Well, what about Gibeah? Man, if you're a conquering king, you take over the capital of your enemy. Gibeah was Saul's capital. Go over there to Gibeah and take your stand against Gibeah. But David said, no, 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 no. You see, these need to be a reconciled people and a repentant people and a new creation. They need a new capital. You know, when you get saved, you get a new headquarters. Amen? The heart's no longer your headquarters. Your heart's no longer your headquarters. Your own logic and reasoning is no longer your headquarters when you come to Jesus. Your headquarters is uh, the new capital, heaven, and this is the constitution and bylaws right here. Amen. And so it couldn't be Gibeah. Well, what about Bethlehem? Man, that's where I'm at. You know, if they called me up from the UN and said, we want you to be king of the world, I'd say, well, I'm going to have a capital right here in Ocean Springs. Can you imagine parking? <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. Bethlehem was David's hometown. Why not put the capital in Bethlehem? Well, Bethlehem was located in the geographical region of the tribe of Judah. Judah was the only tribe that followed David for those seven and a half years. Now that they're reconciled, David wanted to show grace and mercy. He said, I'll not put the capital in my hometown. I want to extend some mercy. I want to have wisdom in my dealings with these people. What, what wisdom is that? Aren't you grateful David was wise? And he says, I want to be gracious and I want to show wisdom so I'm not going to make it in Bethlehem which would make a declarative statement, this kingdom is about me. Well, David was all about the nation of Israel. And so he said, no, I'm not going to put the capital in Judah. I'm going to put the capital in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was located just above the, the, the line uh, from Judah into the tri geographical region of Benjamin. Benjamin, or Jerusalem was in Benjamite territory. When Joshua took, when Joshua took it, Jerusalem, it was allotted to Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And so David took Jerusalem for three reasons. It was the center, his character, and then his compassion for the Benjamites. Now here's the point. I said the first thing about those who march into the new Jerusalem is they've been reconciled. And the second thing is that they have been restored. Well, while Jerusalem was in the geographic region of Benjamin... And in the days of Joshua, it was the tribe of Judah that took Jerusalem and gave it to the Benjamites. But we read further in the book of Judges years later that the Benjamites could not hold on to Jerusalem and the Jebusites dismissed them. And so it was the Benjamites who lost during the days of the Judges, the darkest days of Israel's history, when every man did what was right in his own eyes. And God would raise up a foreign power like the Jebusites to conquer them and oppress them until they repented. Well, it was in that sinful time that the tribe of Benjamin lost control and lost the region of Jerusalem. And the Jebusites got it. They got it back. And they built their fortress there. And so God was, David was being compassionate towards the Benjamite and Listen, does this sound familiar? Does this sound like our Savior? He took 
what was lost in sin and restored it in Christ, in himself, by making Jerusalem his capital. Dear friend, I want to share something with you. God, in Christ Jesus, will restore your relationship and fellowship with himself. That's what he does. And the people who walk in the two Jerusalem one day into the glorious heaven of heavens, I want to tell you will be a people who have regained in Christ everything they lost in sin. They lost their life in sin, but Jesus gives it back to them. And they lost their capital, but Jesus gives it back to them. They lose their hope, but Jesus gives it back to them. And so I want to tell you, when you come to Christ Jesus, what you have lost because of sin, namely your relationship with God, is restored and you are reconciled unto God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Now, as I was taking an early morning walk one day last week, I got to thinking about this point. And the thought kept coming to mind, so I want to say something about this. Restoration in Christ Jesus is spiritual always. Sometimes it might be physical or relational with others. I don't know what restoration in those terms looks like for you. I have known people that because of sin, before they came to Christ, they drank their income away. They gambled it away. They wasted it like the prodigal son in riotous living. And then they come to Jesus, and after a few years of applying the word of God, which before they could not do, now they could do in the power of the Holy Spirit, they're restored financially. That may or may not happen to you. I have known many people, some of them in this room, because of their life in sin, they lost a relationship with their children or maybe their parents or their spouse or their loved ones because of, the, of, of their lostness, their sin, and, and they mistreated them and it, and it has a ruined relationship. I don't know what restoration looks like for you in that situation. But I will tell you this, you can be restored to them by being right with Jesus, even though they may not be restored to you. And that might be a part of restoration. You get right with God, and then you learn to have a right relationship with them, and whether or not they reciprocate, and whether or not they respond, you have the power of the Holy Spirit on you, and prayer, and patience, and God could very well restore that relationship whole. So I don't know what restoration looks like in every instance. And I'm not going to stand up and tell you I do. And I'm not about to stand up and tell you, you get restored in your relationship to God in Christ Jesus and reconciled to Him that all your issues from your past life are going to be solved and done. I'm not about to tell you that, first of all, because it's a lie. Second of all, because I know better. But I will tell you this, you get your relationship right with God first and then you can be well on your way to seeing your other relationships get restored. And you will be right even though others may not be. I just needed to say that today. I don't know why, but I needed to say that today. But I do know this, all you have lost in terms of your spiritual relationship with God is restored in Christ Jesus. I'm so glad Paul said in the book of Ephesians, we have all, all, all. You know what the word, Greek word all means? All. Every bit of it, every part of the whole, every bit of it. We have all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Glory to God. That's better than me marching in the army. And so I won't tell you, folks, you have... You can be restored. And it is nothing, how God can do it, is nothing short of miraculous. i got to take a few minutes and tell you how David took the city of Jerusalem. This is an incredible part of Bible history, and it blesses me. How did David take Jerusalem? Well, the Jebusites built this stronghold at Jerusalem. Now, if you build a city 
over there um, that doesn't have a river running through it. you got to have a water supply. As a matter of fact, the place they conquered, that part of the city they conquered, is called Zion. Do you see that? Zion. You've heard of it. Zion. Do you know what the word Zion means? Parched place. You've got to have water. And so the Jebusites built this fortress and called it Zion, parched place. And they built seven-story walls all around it. Add those seven-story walls along with the valleys and ravines and all the topography of Jerusalem. It was an impregnable city. It could not be taken. But the problem for the Jebusites was, is the water supply. And so just outside the wall, there was and is to this day a spring called the Gihon Spring. You can go see it today. It still flows today. There it is. Right there. That's part of the Gihon Spring. The word Gihon means gusher. And it's like, it's like um, Israel's Old Faithful. You ever seen Old Faithful on a clock? It just, well, this spring just gushes out like on a clock. It just, it's Old Faithful over there. And it Throws the water for people to drink in that parched place. But the problem of the Jebusites is, is they had that wall, they were protected with that fortress, but the Gion Spring was outside the walls. That posed a twofold problem. Number one, the water supply could be poisoned, could be affected, could be taken by the enemy that besieged them. And number two, when you goes out, go outside the walls to get water to bring back in the walls, you were vulnerable. So they had to do something about the water supply inside the walls. I was, exp I was sharing this morning, earlier this morning, with our sound man, Tim Reed, back there, and he said, why didn't they just build the walls with the spring inside? And I could have had a V8. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, I want to tell you, it's probably the topography of the land would not allow for that. And so what they did was, is they built a fortress around the Gihon Springs. That solved a major problem. It kept the enemy from the water supply. But they still had to go outside the city, make themselves vulnerable to get water. Isn't that an amazing thing? And so they had a problem. Notice in verse 8, David says in verse 8, Whosoever gets up to the gutter and smites the Jebusites and the lame and the blind. Now, they were being sarcastic. They said, David, they, they hollered down to David, there's absolutely no way you're going to be able to take this city. We got these seven-story high walls we got ravines and valleys. There's no way you're going to be able to take the city. As a matter of fact, David, we'll line our defenses with our lame and our blind. And they'll defend our city. It's, 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 it, it's impossible. That's how easy it's going to be able to ward you off. And they were being sarcastic. David mocked them right back. And he said, whoever goes up the gutter first and takes out those lame and blind whom my soul hates. See, he's being sarcastic. Will be my chief captain, chief and leader of my armed forces. Isn't that amazing? First Chronicles, the sister text, tells us that it was Joab who did it. Joab did it. Some say that David thought... This mission is so dangerous, and I'm going to show you why it was so dangerous, that whoever went up first would surely be killed. And that's why he put out the challenge, hoping Joab, actually knowing Joab would be the one to say, I'll not be second in command to anybody. I have ran your army for seven and a half years. Remember, and David said, I don't know how to deal with Joab. So some say that David saw an opportunity to get rid of Joab. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I will say this. Isn't there a future account in the Bible where David 
did something to get somebody killed to get rid of him? So this might have been in David's thinking, and maybe that's what those historians are thinking. I don't know, but I thought it was interesting to say. And David said, whoever goes up through the gutter. Now that word gutter, you might have translated differently in one of your Bible translations. One of your Bible translations may say that it is um, a, um, a, a god. And it was a reference to the um, images that the, the Jebusites would have on their walls. And David was saying, who can ever put a lasso around one of those images and climb up the wall first? He's captain. And then another translation, it might say grappling hook. And David was saying, who can ever throw the grappling hooks over the wall and pull themselves up first? You know, kind of like they did at Point Hawk in World War II on D-Day. Will be the captain. The problem with that is, is those were words and translations that people applied for many years not knowing something. There's a third and better translation. There's several more, but the third one I want to talk to you about, and even gutter is not the best, water shaft. Whoever goes up the water shaft will be my chief captain. And I say that's what it is is because in the book of Psalms, chapter 42 and verse 7, this word translated gutter in Hebrew is also translated there in Psalm 42. It's the only two places where this word is used. Now, folks, let me, let me give you some insight in how to understand Scripture and the meaning of words. You don't have to have Hebrew or Greek you don't have to take a single class in that. But you just need what you call today, there's plenty of tools, you need a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. You get yourself a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance and every Greek word and every Hebrew word is numbered. And you could go into the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance and find that number in the concordance and see everywhere that word is translated and it's all free on computer these days. When I surrendered to preach at 16 years old, a lady in my town came by and brought me a gift one day. I was 16 years old, so what's this, about five, six, seven, ten years ago? But anyway, I, I got that present open, and it was a big old thick book about like that. It's sitting up in my study today. It was Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. And those Hebrew words are all numbered. Well, the only other place this word is used is in Psalm 42, and it's translated water spout. So it has to have to do with the moving of water. And it was unclear and misunderstood until 1867. 1867. When this man, Sir Charles Warren, a British archaeologist and British military man went over to Israel and started digging around. And he discovered a tunnel from the Gihon Springs 135 feet long. And it came from 135 feet from the Gihon Springs and stopped and went straight up into a shaft that you see in the picture. The shaft was 42 feet tall. I think at the most it's 8 feet wide at the most. Uh, and in some places it narrows. But it was 42 feet tall. 42 feet up. And what the Jebusites did was is they went to the Gihon Springs. They dug a tunnel underneath the wall. And then they dug that shaft straight up and they dug another tunnel from the other end and people would come down that tunnel and they'd come to this shaft and they could draw water without ever leaving the city. And that is what David is referring to. He says, who can ever go up that shaft first and take the Jebusites will be my chief captain. That's what Joab climbed up with his army. That's what Joab went after. He had all his swords and his weapons and his shield and his armor on. Oh, and he climbed up that shaft. 
I know Joab was a bad dude and mean and all that, but I want to tell you something. That is something else. I don't know of anybody who could do that. Can anybody in here do that? No. But Joab did it. Even that wicked man Joab, God said, I want this to be my capital, and I'm going to let Joab take it. And Joab crawled up that shaft and took it. It's called Warren's Shaft. And you can go see it to this day. And so 42 feet high. That's what he climbed after. Now you say, preacher, why would you tell us all that? It's nothing short of miraculous. The point is, who marches into the new Jerusalem? Those who have been reconciled. And secondly, those who have been restored. And I want to tell you, you get reconciled to God in Christ Jesus and you come to Christ and, and you be saved and you be heaven bound. It is nothing short of miraculous what God can restore in your life. Peace, confidence, boldness for Him, purpose. God can restore all those things if we would just come to Him in Christ Jesus. What was lost in sin can be restored in Christ Jesus. Amen. There's one more thing. Not only those who are reconciled but those and those who are restored, but also those who are reinforced. Look in verse... Nine. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. That city of David is, uh, is an, a site today where David established his headquarters. It's called the city of David, Mount Zion. And it is um, where he had his house built, as we'll see next week, Lord willing, and where his capital was. And across the way is, is the Temple Mount, which would be built later. But notice the last sentence in verse 9. It says, And David built round about from Millow and inward. The Millow was a rampart. You had a land of hills and valleys. When you built a wall, you had to fill in the gap between the top of the hill and the wall and make a flat surface, a terrace, if you will. And David built the Millow. It was a defensive position. You know that those who marched in are those who have the security of our king. And then, I want you to notice something else. David, look what it says. It's, it's just a, a word or two. It says, and David built from the millow our security inward. What did he build inward? We all know that David would go outward. As a matter of fact, verse 10 talks about David growing his kingdom. David would ultimately restore, uh, claim all the land that God promised Abraham. He would claim all that land, all the way from the Nile River to the Euphrates River. He would claim that land. But first, what he did was he got his people in the capital of Jerusalem, secured them, and then built inward. You know what he built, you know what he built inward? Homes and houses and farms and vineyards so his people would have a place to live. Isn't there another king who goes to prepare a place for us? secures us in himself and goes to provide for our sustenance both now and in heaven. Amen. I'm telling you, Jesus is all over the Bible. And so who's going to march in? Those who have been reconciled to God, those who have been restored, and those who have been reinforced with the security of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our security. And he is our sustenance. Well, don't get ready to leave because I can go some more. But I do want to give you this before we close. I can just imagine David when he approaches this city and that Jebusite commander or that Jebusite king says, <laughs> we're going to put our lame and blind up here and they're going to fight you off. You can't come up here. These walls are seven stories tall. There's no way. We'll, our lame and blind are going to fight you off. Well, Matthew Henry, the great commentator, says, mockery and, and ridicule does not intimidate greatness. It animates it. And so that's when David says, 
Whoever gets that shaft, takes that shaft, walks up that shaft, crawls up that shaft, and takes the city, he's my chief. And Joab said, I'm not going to be second to anybody. Get back, boys. I'm going up. And they followed Joab up, and he took it. The blind and the lame. This Jebusite king used the Gihon Springs and a tunnel and a shaft to mock David, the king of kings. 300 years later, there would be a king by the name of Hezekiah. He's in Jerusalem in the stronghold of David. The mighty Assyrians are on the march and he knows they are conquering everybody and they're coming for Jerusalem and he must secure the city and he must have that water supply more secure than it ever has been. So what does Hezekiah do? He goes down and he extends that 135-foot tunnel all the way down 583 yards and funnels that water from the Gion Springs all the way up the city wall to go into the city at a further location. There's people in this room who walked this tunnel with me and Miss Tracy some years ago. You can walk in that tunnel. Now, I've kind of been there, done that, but if you pay my way, I'll walk it with you again. Amen. But off they go. Now, I want to show you something. Go to the next slide, if you will, Gary. I want to show them that. You see the Gihon Springs, and you see that tan wall kind of, that model? That's how that Hezekiah's tunnel stretched across to the other side of the city, 580-something yards long. They started at one end, and some other guys started at another end, and you know what? When they met, they were just less than an inch off being dead center. They didn't even have a slide rule, folks. Amen? Isn't that amazing? And they built that tunnel. But I want you to see that that tunnel, Hezekiah's tunnel, while the Jebusites and Warren Shaft Stops right there, 135 feet in, 42 feet up. Hezekiah's tunnel goes all the way across the city to the pool of Siloam. Look at the next slide. See, you can see it. Gihon Springs. See Warren's shaft going up and how they'd come to excess Warren's shaft and then straight, straight across Hezekiah's tunnel. You see that? Now go to John chapter 9, and I want to show you another time about that tunnel. John chapter 9, we're almost done. Hang with me. You're going to make it. John chapter 9. And as Jesus passed by, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's on the other side of town. He saw a man which was blind from birth. Now, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't we just talk about blind people? But that was in terms of mockery. Now we're going to see the blind in terms of mercy. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? We'll deal with that stupid question another day. Jesus answered, Neither of this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day the night comes when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay with the spit. That, that's a, a very graphic picture of Jesus giving his life to this man. You ever... Uh, heard the phrase, boy, he's the spitting image of his father. Well, that comes back to this. It, 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 he, he's got his father's life is what he's saying. And it's a symbolic note. And he spits and puts it on the eyes of this blind man and said, and anointed his eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, let me, let, let's get imaginative for a minute. Somebody said, the pool of Siloam, and Jesus said, yeah, you know, 
the pool that exits, where the exit is of Hezekiah's tunnel. You know, it starts at the Gihon Springs. And when the Gihon Springs gush out, that water flows past that shaft that the Jebusites built all the way down these 500 some odd yards to exit in this pool, the Pool of Siloam. Go wash in the Pool of Siloam, he said. And he went and he washed and he came up seeing. So I want to tell you something, folks. The Jebusites use their blind to show mockery. But Jesus uses the blind at the pool of Siloam and the Gihon Springs to show mercy. To show mercy. Jesus is still conquering the blind. Amen. Either in judgment or in mercy. One or the other. So who is it that march in? Those who have been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus, you've been saved. You've been born again. Those who have been restored in their relationship with God got a brand new capital. Brand new capital. And then those who are reinforced with his security. David never lost the city of Jerusalem. God will never lose you. And then those who have their sustenance provided for him as he builds inward. See, it's an amazing thing. The Lord will build you inward so he can use you outward. That's what David did. I pray you know Jesus. Isn't this a wonderful text? I'm telling you, Jesus is all over the Bible. Amen. And is Jesus with you? Is he in you? Do you know him? I pray you would meet him today. We want to help you with that. You come on down this aisle. We're going to stand and we're going to be singing. And you just walk out the, down the aisle. I'm going to be standing right up front. Cole and I will be there. And you just say, I want to know Jesus. And we'll help you. I want to be saved. We'll help you. Maybe you have another decision to unite with us uh, from a sister church. You come as the Spirit leads. Let's stand together. This is Cole Andrews. Thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I just wanted to encourage you to visit our website, fbcosms.com.